Welcome to the Providence Church Podcast. Here's Pastor Dwight. Most people don't like weeding. In fact, last night was funny. We were talking about a summer job for our college daughter, Kenzie. She's home from break. She's heading back next weekend. And we talked about things she might do this summer. And one of our girls mentioned, hey, maybe you could do some landscaping. And she said, well, you remember when I was a little girl at the other house, we had the garden and mom would say, let's go out and weed. And then I'd go out for like five or 10 minutes and then I'd go in for some water and or the bathroom. And then like an hour later, where's Kenzie? Where's Kenzie? You know, she and so the, the phrase this morning they were starting with is your heart in it? Her heart was not in weeding. And I don't know, maybe your heart's not in weeding. It's not always a, a very fun job, right? Is your heart in it? You know, in the end, that's what God wants from more than anything else from us. And I think I've said this again and again, I'll say it again. He wants your heart. Biblically, the heart represents the very center of our lives. And sometimes in the Bible, when they say heart, it refers to our mind or understanding. It, there, is, there is a separate, of course, a separate word for our minds, but sometimes the heart encompasses what we think and understand. At other times, the heart, the Bible is speaking about our emotions and our affections. And so that, of course, represents our hearts. There are times when it is referring to our will and our choices out of the heart. The will is attached. In fact, biblically, it's the soul that's the center where our will comes from, but also the heart is used interchangeably with that. The heart is the place where all of these things come together. Brian Wilkerson says this, Who we are and what we do is ultimately determined by the condition of our hearts. We are not robots who can be mentally programmed to function in certain ways, nor are we animals who can be trained to behave properly. We are human beings who think, feel, and choose. And the place where our thoughts, emotions, and will intersect is right here at the center of our being, the heart. In the end, our heart will reveal who we are in any given situation. Our heart will determine what we do. The heart is central. In fact, if you think about the ways that we communicate, so we might ask the question, is your heart surrendered? You've ever heard that phrase. Do you have a surrendered heart? In other words, is your life and your will given over to God? That when you hear from God, whether it be from his word or the prompting of his Holy Spirit, are you willing to surrender to that and to move with him to yield and to go where he asks you to go? Another question, is your heart hungry? A hungry heart. Do you desire the things of God? Do you want to know him and his ways more and more in your life? Are you hungry for truth? Hungry to know what God says? Hungry to get into his word, right? So Jesus said what? In the Beatitudes, he said, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They'll be satisfied. So there's something about hunger for the things of God that Jesus talks 
This is, you'll be blessed if you have a hungry heart. Is your heart soft? I have said this a lot in my uh, ministry, even to couples, people that I'm sitting with counseling. A soft heart is the key to life. That is to say that, is your heart receptive? Is your heart humble? Is your heart teachable? So that God's word and his truth finds lodging in your heart. That when you hear it and receive it, you, you want it to sink in. You're willing to pivot when God speaks to you. And so if you're wrong about something or you're in error about something, when God tries to come and he begins to correct you, your heart is soft enough to receive it, not prideful, but I'm going to be humble to move and to repent or to confess or to change. That's a really big deal. Also, consider the prominence of the heart in how God relates to us. So I have some scriptures. I don't know if they're up on the screen or not, but in your bullet, in your outline this morning, if you have an outline, I listed some scriptures there that are important. First, First Samuel 16, 7. Is it up there? Yeah, yeah, it is. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That scene is when they've called uh, the sons in, David and his brothers in, who's going to be the future king? And they're all lined up, and they all look great. And they're all, you know, tall and handsome and vigorous and strong. And, and so same as trying to, who, 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 Lord, who, Lord? None of them are there. Oh, there's a, there's a, go get that, the shepherd boy, go get him. And it's David that comes. And David is going to be made king because God sees the heart, a man after God's own heart right? Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, God has set eternity in the human heart. We have eternity put within. When we are born, there is something of eternity set within us so that we know this life is not all that there is, that there is in fact more, that we were created for eternity. So when this life is over, we're prepared to either spend eternity with him or spend eternity separated from him. But we have eternal, this, this is not all there is, these 70, 80 years, whatever that might be for us, maybe less. Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. There it is again. Second Samuel, excuse me, Second Chronicles 16, 9, that's one of my favorite verses. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. The eyes of the Lord, I like the one verse says they run to and fro, throughout the earth, the eyes of the Lord searching the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Love the phrasing. Love the image of God on his throne, looking, 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 looking. Who's for me? Who's for me? Who's committed? Whose hearts are set on me? And God's, God sees, right? He sees all. Love that. And then our, our understanding of salvation is actually tied directly to the heart. So you go to the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, Verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the Bible attaches believing to our hearts. Yes, it's our minds, but it's also our hearts. It's a combination of understanding and allegiance. Where does your allegiance stem from? It stems from your heart. 
We talk about allegiance to God. God, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm aligned with you. I'm bound with you. I'm committed to you. And it's, yes, it involves our minds and the understanding of who he is and who we are, but it also involves our hearts, our affections, our passions, our desire, that, that, in, that in fact, too, is linked to this whole understanding of believing. I, I'm, I'm choosing to follow Jesus because of who he is and because of his great love for me. His love has pierced my heart. And now I know that he loves me, and so I love him back. And there's something about that at the heart level that's a part of our salvation. This morning, we are coming back to the next truth in our deeper dive into worship. And last week, if you were here, we talked about why we worship. Two big things. First of all, because of who he is. We talked about his greatness and his majesty. Remember that word, majesty? And that Revelation chapter 4, we just sang it. On the throne, great king over all. We worship him because of who he is. Secondly, we worship because of what he has done. And we had communion together and acknowledging that through the cross, he came for us. He sent his son for us to restore us, to redeem us, to forgive us, to make a way for us. Where there was no way because of our sin, he made a way and sent his son to break into creation so that we could be saved. And so he has not only for his greatness of who he is, his majesty on the throne, but he has also chosen to love us and send his son to, 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 to come after and to save us. And so it's because of what he has done for us. Today, we're going to come to Matthew chapter 15. And I'd like you, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And Jesus is going to re reinforce for us the bedrock reality of worship. And I'll say it up front, and maybe you see it in your... Worship flows from our hearts. Why did I spend all that time in the beginning this morning talking about the importance of our hearts? Because that's where worship comes from. If you and I are going to worship the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and we're going to understand that relationship, where's it going to flow from? Where's it going to emanate from? From our hearts. And so look at, with me at Matthew chapter 15 if you have your Bible this morning. First nine verses. And Jesus is having another conversation with the religious leaders. Verse one, then Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, and here's the fifth commandment in the ten, honor your father and mother. And you say, whoever, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. So I'll talk about that in a minute, what he means by that. Then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. It's a practice called korban. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, 
the commandments of men. I like how the message, if you've ever heard of the, the paraphrase, uh, the message, Eugene Peterson wrote that 25 years ago probably, maybe more than that. And the message translates verse 8 and 9 here in this text this way. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. That's how Peterson translates 8 and 9. I like that. And so that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Hippocrates in the Greek, verse 7. And what are Hippocrates? What are hypocrites? They are play actors. The Hippocrates in, the, in, the, in that uh, uh, era of history were the ones who wore the masks when they went to act in the local theater. Whatever, wherever they set up shop to have their production, they would be different characters based on the mask that they wore. And so if they wanted to be this person, they would put this mask on, this person, they put the miss, this mask on, and they had all these different masks that they wore interchangeably, and they were the Hippocrates, the play actors. Jesus makes that statement about who they are. The encounter here is with the Pharisees and the scribes. And the scribes, you've heard about the Pharisees, the scribes were also involved. They were hair splitters. They were nitpickers. They would find the, the tiniest little jot and tittle of the, the, the oral law, the extra law, and they would clamp down on it and make it a big deal. They elevated the tradition of the elders. There was a thing called the oral law that was beyond the Torah. You know, Torah is what God gave Moses, the law. But the oral law came down over time in history among the Jewish people, and it was the Talmud and the Mishnah. And if I'm not mistaken, there was 613 more commandments or laws attached to God's law through the Talmud. That's a lot of extra laws to pay attention to. And they weren't God-given. They were man-generated. It took the traditions established by the elders beyond the level that God ever intended in the Old Testament law. So they have this thing that this conversation starts around hand-washing. And this was not about hygiene. They weren't saying, hey, this was not like your mother when you came in from playing, hey, wash your hands before dinner. Right? Good practice. If you got kids out playing in the dirt and they come in for dinner, he say, hey, go wash your hands up before. We did. You, I'm sure you had your kid. Wash your hands up. We're going to eat. Oh, great. I get it. Hygiene. But this was not about hygiene. This was about ceremonial cleansing. This was about avoiding defilement. And so they had this elaborate practice. I think I might have mentioned this to you before, where they would do this hand washing and they would start with their fingers up and they'd get under the water and let the water run down their hands, down their wrists and down to here, right? And then they would also turn them downward and they would start to pour water here from the wrist area and it would run down the fingers and off. And they would do that before every meal to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean. Never prescribed in the law, but prescribed by these scribes and Pharisees 
who created a fence around the law. They didn't want, they were so committed, we don't want to ever break God's law, so they made an extra set of laws so they would never even come close to breaking the law. A fence. This was a part of the fence of the laws that, that these folks created. To keep themselves clean. Some uh, really observant Pharisees even washed like that before every course of their meal. So they would, if they had four or five courses, they would do this uh, great uh, ritual even before every course came. Can you imagine that if you go out for dinner? How that might lengthen the process, right? Hmm. They were consumed, they were concerned about defilement. And in the Jewish law, you could be defiled in a number of ways. Uh, if you came into contact with a dead body, that would be a cause. If you came into contact with a diseased person, that could be a cause. If you were eating unclean foods, that would also be part of it. And But here's the thing, even contact, even contact with a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, could make you ritually unclean. So if you're down at the market doing business with someone and shake hands or rub elbows, and then you got to go, oh, gotta go, got to wash up. I just touched an unclean person. You see how absurd this was. So they added layers to God's word in order to remain pure. And yet, they were willing, as Jesus says, to break God's actual commands with a tricky runaround. And so what he mentions here in, in Matthew 15 is this practice of korban, korban, korban. I'll say korban. What you, here's what they did. They vow, it was a vow that a, a Jewish family could make to set aside money and property for God's use. We have some things we need in the temple. And so they could take part of their uh, income and say, this is korban. And they would set it aside, and it was to be used only for God's specific use, oftentimes use in the temple. Now, here's the problem. They might have had some aging parents that were in their home that needed care, that needed maybe an extra chair, or they needed some extra medicines, or they needed something to help them get through their time in their aging process. And they were playing games with the korban because they would say, well, well you know, we, this is for God's use. Meanwhile, they're ignoring the very needs to honor their father and mother who were under their own care. But no, we set this aside. But here's the trick. The trick was, and they had this, this was the understanding, with the Corban, it was agreed upon that you could continue to use Corban money during your lifetime. So you still had access to that money. You didn't send it in. You had it. You just, you just made a declaration about it. This is what the use of it is for. So it was a runaround. It was a, 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 a way behind, a hypocritical way behind, missing the commandment, honoring your father and your mother. Jesus says, so for, the sake, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of verse 6. You have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, you're playing games with God. And here's the, the issue for us with worship as well. And for the Pharisees, it was possible to honor God if the services were properly rendered. 
going through the motions, washing the hands properly, going through the rituals, if you will. For Jesus, it was impossible to honor God unless your heart was turned toward God. Jesus said, if your heart's not in it, it means nothing. If you're just going through the rituals, it means nothing. If you're just playing the game, it means nothing. If you're going through the motions without your heart attack, it means nothing. Jesus says, this is just lip service. Words and actions with no desire to please or honor God. He says, in vain do they worship me. And Piper says it this way. He says, this is zero worship. It is zero if there is no heart dimension to it. So you can do as many deeds as you want, go to as many church services as you want, and never be worshiping if it, if it is all external and nothing is happening in your heart toward God. All true worship is, in essence, a matter of the heart, right? And so I have a note here about us and the, I'll call them the mechanics of worship or encountering God. So when it comes to prayer and your approach to prayer, I know, because I experience this myself, sometimes you're praying. Maybe you're in your home or you're in your car or wherever you're at having your prayer. And sometimes we can get into a, a, a thing where our prayers just become rote. Like we're saying the same things and we repeat the same words, and we kind of get stuck in the same rut, if you will. In fact, it's brought to me because the other night I was at a, a basketball game, and they, it was at a, a, a Christian environment, and they had a prayer before the game. And I was, you know, and I've heard this before, but it was, I've heard this probably now 10, 12 times, and it's the same prayer, like every time. And I get it. There's teams from another school there. And so it's not always, not everyone in the gym is, is a believer. I get that. But it's like, this is the script. And we read the script, and, and then amen, and then move on. And I was like, okay, maybe we could, you know, tweak it a little bit. Maybe there's a couple other things you might want to, but that's just a part of the story. So it reminded me of how sometimes our prayers can become scripted, and we just kind of, dear God, da, 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 da. And they can sound very, and, and the thing about that, our hearts are no longer engaged. Like we're just going through the motions of prayer. And it happens. But, but it, is, that, is that a regular part of our, is that how we always pray? Singing worship songs, right? How, how, does, how does that look in terms of our hearts? Sometimes our mind is a million miles away. You know, we're, we're in the sanctuary where the, the team is leading and we're singing and maybe we're thinking about what's this afternoon I got to do, I'm going to run over here and then tonight we have this and then, you know, lunch and then, and then tomorrow I got to, you know, we can kind of sometimes get out there and we're thinking about our schedule and we're thinking about the week ahead or we're thinking about the thing that happened this morning at the house before we left or we're, we're thinking about a lot of other things. But Here's the song, and we're in the sang we're worshiping, but but our, but is our heart engaged? Is our mind engaged? Or are we just kind of running through the, the Sunday morning routine? Reading the word. Same thing. It can be sitting down to have your quiet time and in the scriptures, and 
You can be thinking about your weekend trip and your deck project and your dinner plans. And oh, yeah, I got to get back to, I mean, and it happens. We're human beings. We're not always on. Okay, I'm not saying we're always going to be 100%, but, but it, what's our pattern? What's, what, what, when we come to the word, are we centering our hearts and thoughts and saying, so for these next few minutes, Lord, I'm going to just, I want, help me to focus right now. Help me to zero in on what you're saying to me right now. You know, and having, even if it's five, 10 minutes in, in that Bible reading time, I want to catch it. I don't want to be thinking about these 16 other things that are on my mind, you know? And we, all, we usually have a lot of things on our minds. So there is a battle. And we know the enemy doesn't want us to engage at the heart level. The enemy doesn't want us to really dig in. The enemy doesn't want us to get deep. The enemy doesn't want us to, un, to truly contact the living God. So he'll keep us distracted, right? But heart level. And we, even with a sermon, right? And, I, and sometimes when we're hearing a, a message, you know, our minds can, again, run, drift, run. Uh, but sometimes we might be listening to a message and, and our hearts are saying, uh, you know, I, not, that I just, not that I don't agree, but, but I'm doing the exact opposite. I hear the word of God and I'm convicted, but my life is, I'm running the whole other direction. And so, and so there's a battle in our hearts every time. Here's the thing, and Wilkerson said this. He said, Brian Wilkerson said, we have, we have the capacity to live double lives, to be one thing on the outside and another on the inside, to act one way at church and another way at home and the office and school. We convince ourselves that as long as we're going to church, reading our Bible, putting our offering in the box, then our abusive words, our ugly thoughts, our selfish spending habits don't matter. Jesus is reminding us that our outward behavior flows from an inner condition. Our hearts, our hearts, our hearts. And there's a really important term in Scripture that directly relates to our worship. And another term that we use when we talk about the heart, uh, in fact, it has two parts, a pure heart. And I'll even use the word this morning, an undivided heart. I think that's what's uh, maybe on your screen, undivided heart. Mm. The phrasing, a pure heart, is used two dozen times in the New Testament. A pure heart is a heart that's free from impurities. No contaminants, no germs, no dirt, if you will. And so in the Bible, one of the classic examples of a pure heart, clean heart, is David's prayer. In Psalm 51, verse 10, he says to God, Create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He is confessing his sin. He has, he has fallen with Bathsheba. He is repenting, and he is saying, God, I need a clean heart. Please create in me a pure heart a heart that's set on you. And so part of, for us, part of the clean heart happens through the work of the cross. That's why it's so important we talk about the cross because the work that Jesus did there is how we are cleansed from our sin. How do you, have, how do you, and, I, how do you and I have a clean, 
pure heart because of the work of the cross, because of the forgiveness that's offered to us, coupled with the work of the Spirit who gives us new hearts. So it's both and. It's the cross, forgiven, restored, cleansed, and then the Holy Spirit comes, new heart. Created me a clean heart, a new heart. And the Holy Spirit comes and gives us new desires and new affections and new passions that align with God's. That's the work that he is constantly doing in our lives, creating in us a new heart, clean heart. The second part of this, though, there's, there's, a, there's an A, and there's a, so the first one is free from impurities. The second part is a pure heart. It's the same thing through and through. It's not a mixture of things. It's all one thing. Pure gold has no trace metals in it. It's all gold and only gold. So the pure in heart are people who God is working in, and they are increasingly about one thing, one pursuit. And every part of them is about one pursuit. And the one pursuit they have is God, no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, no matter who they are with, their lives revolve around God. This is part of having an undivided heart. That when you're over here, you're the same person as you are over here because you have the same love for the living God. So no matter who you're with or what you're doing, God is at the center of that. You might be with different groups of people, you might be having different experiences, different interactions, but God is still at the core of your heart. And so that doesn't change, no matter what you're doing or who you're with. Undivided heart. Jesus said, remember this, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they will see God. And so what part of that means is we will, yes, we will see God in the life to come, and their promise of salvation is real, and the hope of the cross is real, and the cleansing and forgiveness of the cross is real, so that because of that, and we are receiving of that, we have the hope of salvation, and we will see God someday, face to face. Wow. Now we can't. Then we will. The other part of this is that we will see, we will begin to see God in this life, not in just eternity, but also in this life. And it won't just be in those rare mountaintop moments, but in everyday life, in ordinary moments. When your life is about one thing, you see that one thing everywhere. Do you ever notice that when you go to buy a car and you're thinking, I want to get this kind of car and you're thinking about it, and you're making plans for it, and then you get out to drive around, and you start to see that car everywhere. I saw 10 of those on the road. I, can't, I didn't know there was that many. Yeah, there's that many, you know, unless you're driving a Maserati, you know. I'm going to see that. You see that car everywhere. It's amazing. The more you're more alert to it, you're more attuned to it, and that's how it is with our hearts. When our hearts are undivided, we begin to see God's handprints, fingerprints in all kinds of ways. By the Spirit, our hearts are now more in tuned to God's movement. 
I love my, my mentor, Pat Kelly. He, he said, uh, when things happen sometimes in our lives and we get together to talk about it, he says, smells like God to me. I love that. Smells like God to me. Yeah, it does. That's, that's, that's who God is. That's how God works. So what we know from his word, then we're paying attention to it in life. And so as we're moving through life, we can see if we're looking, if our hearts are not divided, we can look more clearly and see the fingerprints of God in all kinds of ways in our lives. His movement, even if we don't always understand it, I should put that caveat in there. We may not always understand the movement of God, the work of God, but we are sure clear it's, it's him. I don't know. I don't know. I can't figure this all out right now, but I know God's in it. I know God's doing something here. I'm holding on. I'm holding on. I'm going to see what happens. I'm trusting, but I believe God's in it. And so in the end, when you have an undivided heart, there's not a compartment for God and a compartment for your career and a compartment for your family and a compartment for your hobbies. There's only one compartment and God is in it and the center of it. And if you have an undivided heart, your thoughts, your feelings, your will are not in conflict with each other. They are aligned with God's purposes for your life. No compartment is sealed off from the lordship of Jesus Christ. So you don't think in terms of God's money and your money or God's time and your time. It's all God's money and it's all God's time. You don't just pray on Sundays or before meals, but you pray your way through the entire day because God's move. I'm moving with God. My heart is set on God. And so it's not just when I get up in the morning and have my quiet time, but if I'm prompted and I'm moving through my day and something happens, I'm going to pray right then and there. I'm going to be in a spirit of prayer throughout my day. So as my antenna is up and a need comes in, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, to seek God about that. So the question this morning, as we wrap this up, is where is your heart? When it comes to worship, not just here on Sunday mornings, but all through your week, is your heart fixed on Him? Is it centered on Him? Because again, remember I said last week, this, is a, this series is about corporate worship, what we do here on the weekends on Sunday morning, but also about your own private worship when it's just you and God. In those moments during your week when you're, when you're centering, centering yourself on him, you're sitting down to read your Bible or you're on a prayer walk or you're in the car with some worship music on or whatever you're doing at work, but you're, you're in tune, you're, your antenna is up, your heart is alert to what God might be doing in your day, any day, every day, all through your days, that your heart is, 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 is poised to respond, to receive, to listen to be soft, to be hungry, to be surrendered, all those things we mentioned earlier this morning. Thank you for listening to our latest sermon. Join us throughout January as we continue to explore worship. In the meantime, connect with us online. Visit our website at provchurch.net or check out our Facebook at Prof Church Life. Until next time.